Real talk. The kind of talk that's real. It's not fake. It's real. It's not pretend. It's totally real. Crypto's real. Crypto's real. And it's about to get real up in here as we interview a crypto OG, Brock Pierce. Brock is real. He's really got a lot of real stuff to say. Real stuff is real. And this is really episode number 219 of the Bad Crypto Podcast, boy. Really? Welcome to the Real Bad Crypto Podcast, the show for the real crypto curious and the real crypto serious. I'm really Joel Kahn, and he's really Travis Wright. I'm the real Travis Wright. There's no other Travis Wrights other than me. I own TravisWright.com. You guys are in for a big treat today. This interview with Brock Pierce exceeded our expectations uh, in terms of the value of the content and the length of the interview. Mm. He is very wordy with his words. He's got a lot to say. This is great. I mean, I, I, we've done so many interviews on this, on this show so far, 230 interviews or more. We've got 270 episodes. I think this may be the best overall content and just mind blowing stuff that we've done. Maybe one of the best ones, definitely one of the top five. Yeah, you guys are going to want to listen from beginning to end. Want to give a big shout out and thank you to our sponsor at Warbly. Uh, we really like what these guys are doing. You've had them on the show. We're big fans of, of crypto and blockchain, but we all know that the public blockchains are missing integrated and compliant financial services that we all need. And and thankfully, Warbly is seeking to change that. They're building an infrastructure for efficient, honest, and accessible financial services. So basically, if you think of insurance, personal and business banking, e-commerce, them and their development partners are redefining these industries from the bottom up. So the services they're creating are going to be compliant. They're going to be auditable. They're going to have identity verification built in. And this builds a network of trust like it should be. So Warbly is allowing us to access fast, secure, honest financial products and services. And uh, this is going to hopefully make the world a fairer place. You guys can check out blockchain's only compliant and regulated financial ecosystem. It's Warbly, W-O-R-B-L-I, Warbly.io. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it built on EOS, the, kind of the platform, right? Or Right. Absolutely. And, and speaking of EOS, <laughs> we have a cool interview with somebody who knows a little something about that, right? He does. Ladies and gentlemen, settle in the one and only Mr. Brock Pierce. And we're super excited today to welcome to the Bad Crypto Podcast, a gentleman who has been in the blockchain space for a very very long time. He's an entrepreneur. He's a VC. He has raised more than $5 billion, that's with a B, for companies that he's founded. He's the chairman of the Bitcoin Foundation, co-founder of the EOS Alliance, Block One, Blockchain Capital, Tether, MasterCoin, but you may know him as Gordon Bombay from the Mighty Ducks films, if you grew up in that era. Please welcome to Bad Crypto Podcast, the one and only Brock Pierce. Hey, Brock. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, look forward to hanging out again sometime soon, perhaps in the Ukraine. You, you never, uh, you never get tired of being introduced as Gordon Bombay, do you? 
Uh, I mean, it's not how I would introduce myself, but I've gotten comfortable with that fact. Uh, you know, we all have our our stories, and um, you know, celebrity certainly is uh, is is one that resonates with a lot of people. And so, uh, my my first life experiences will always be prevalent, at least in the minds of some. Yeah, well, I'm always going to be known as the creator of the iFart app. So, you know, you just carry this stuff with you, and that's just uh, that's how it goes. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, still anyway. waiting to be known for something. Still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best. Uh, so let's let's fire this thing up here, and I want to start with a question that, uh, that I don't think I've ever started with in an interview, and that is, what is your passion? What is your mission? My passion? That's a great question. Uh, these things obviously evolve over time and through, you know, over the course of my life, you know, it's really all about trying to serve others, try to leave the world better than I found it, try to make a positive impact on as many lives as possible. And the most fun aspect of that is, you know, figuring out how to do that, how to, you know, have the greatest impact, how to, to find as I like to tip my hat to Satoshi. And I often use this term known as Ikigai which is uh, a Venn diagram where it's figuring out what you love or what you're passionate about, figuring out what you're good at, what your skills are. And then the third ring is, you know, figuring out what the world needs. And at the center of those three rings is your life's purpose. And so what you're passionate about in my case, how do I make, you know, a positive impact in the world? How do I leave it better than I found it? Then figuring out what you're good at. Okay. What skills have you developed over the course of your life? You know, I like to refer to them as superpowers, you know, the things that Malcolm Gladwell would say that you've invested 10,000 hours into, you know, those are, call it your, your unique skills that uniquely define you as you, and then figuring out what the world needs. And those combat, that combination of three things, if you, you know, make that your focus, we all have one. And I refer to that as our life's purpose. When you see the typical Ikigai uh, chart, it has a fourth ring, which says, you know, what you can get paid for. I've uh, eliminated that. Um, because I don't think it's actually that important. I figure, and in my experience, that if you're doing what you love or you're passionate about what you're good at and what the world needs, it doesn't matter if you're going to get paid well, because you're going to be happy. And most likely, you're going to get paid better than if money was your focus. I found that the more you pursue money and the more you make it your focus, often the less you'll get of it, or the more miserable you will become because you've made your entire life focus the pursuit of money and you've forgotten about the things that really matter, like enjoying every minute of it. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great point there, man. I, I remember a book I read called Think and Grow Rich, and the whole point about that book was like, add more value and help other people because if you help other people get what they want, then in the end, you'll get what you want. And if you add more value than you're getting paid for, then you'll actually get exponentially more money down the road because you're adding so much value. So I, that really resonates with me. That's great stuff. Yeah, I, I, and through my observations over the course of my life, I know that to be true. You know, I believe that to be true. Now, others may disagree with me, but throughout my life's experience and all of my observations, that's, you know, one of the key takeaways. Now, is that sort of the, the, that spiritual side? Because I know that, you know, I've seen your presentations now a couple of times, and I know how, you're always walking around with some piece of sacred geometry, uh, you know, and there's some different stuff to that. And I'm actually on Friday, I'm getting a tattoo of the fruit of life and metrono, uh, Metatron's cube on my arm. So that's one thing that's always been interesting to me. So maybe 
what what does what does that that mean? Because I, I know for you, you're always walking around with various different pieces of sacred geometry, and so maybe talk about that. I think our audience will find that fascinating. Well, I mean, when you start to think about what is the world in which we live, you know, what is the world really made up of? When you start to think about it more deeply, clearly, if you look at nature, you're going to see that there are patterns that exist everywhere. That there is geometry in in everything. And when you start looking at the foundational geometries that sort of make up our world, we often refer to those things as sacred geometries. Like you talk about the, uh, the fruit of life. The fruit of life begins as the seed of life, uh, seven rings. And in all religions, they have a similar origin story, which is the first seven days. It's why we have seven days in our weeks and, you know, things of that nature. And it's how all life forms. When, you know, you were being conceived as a baby, that's how the cells first form, and that's how all living things form. And these patterns exist in everything, you know, also in sounds and vibrations and frequency. I like to say that the, uh, you know, the free can see, or better yet, the freaks can see, freaks can see frequency, right? Uh, and so you try to look for these patterns in life and you figure out what it means to you and how you choose to interpret that information. And I think it's very relevant to the blockchain space. I mean, it's in, in math we trust. I mean, this is all math, ultimately, right? It is. You know, there were supposed to be eight days originally, and one of them was going to be called Bad Day. Uh, we're actually petitioning to bring that one back. So <laughs> Ringo, Ringo came up with that, I think, back in the day. Bad Day. So, you know, you obviously saw some patterns as you first discovered crypto. So let's set the Wayback Machine to when you first said, what the hell is this stuff? What happened? Well, I'd been doing building digital currency businesses since 1999, primarily around the gaming sector. And this is in the beginning when the first video games were being networked. You know, you originally had, you know, games where you'd play with yourself or you'd save it and play with multiple players on the same device. But as, you know, the Internet started to connect our gaming experiences, it allowed you to play with people all over the world. And eventually that enabled persistent games. Games where whatever you accomplished in that game, whatever, call it assets, you acquired when you logged off and you came back, those things would still be there. And those things were alienable. They were things that you could trade with other players in the game. And naturally, a market emerged. And I recognized that very early on, that there were people that had, call it discretionary income, and those people that had more inventory or more assets than they needed and they would happily trade those in-game intangible assets for real-world money. And so I started building some of the first businesses doing that back in 1999. And then I made that my primary focus in 2000, 2001. And I ended up building out, call it the secondary markets and the exchanges for all the in-game economies. Think Let me pause you there for a second, Brock, because uh, do you recall when Yahoo launched their multiplayer game network? Uh, they didn't have assets, but it was chess, checkers, bridge, backgammon, all that good stuff. Yeah, I've done a lot of business with Yahoo games back when that was uh, – uh, I even looked at buying it. Okay, well, you then we would have been connected because I sold that to them. Um, I created, along with my partner, ClassicGames.com, which Yahoo acquired, and it became Yahoo Games. Uh, well, uh, our, our lives have been uh, – uh intertwined for longer than we realized do you, do you remember the uh the guy the icon there was an avatar of a guy with the red cap goatee and glasses vaguely you know, familiar if i saw it i'd probably be able to you would because it came up automatically i'm, I'm assuming it's it. iconic it's just been a few years since i've been on the site yeah well that was me 
so so there you go we our paths have crossed yeah well so it, 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 so you you obviously uh, uh, having been in the game space followed the the emergence of these massively multiplayer games which is really when these you know sort of secondary market economies right. became meaningful they became big and it, you know it started with uh, you know really Ultima online mm-hmm. and then everquest and then dark ages of Camelot and a bunch of other games and then eventually World of Warcraft hit which then you know really you know, grew the space. And then you had other things like Second Life. And then that, that trend obviously was not just a, a, a Western trend. It was also, it originated from Korea, South Korea and China. And it was because over in those markets, it was all, all these games were being pirated. And so there was a, an incredible for, you know, pe- amount of people in those places that had a propensity to game, but they couldn't sell the package software. And so these first sort of network games that had a subscription fee for access were invented over there because they needed to find a way to monetize, you know, this massive amount of activity. And that's where it emerged from. So this was a global phenomenon. And so um, I, I started making all the markets in these games like EverQuest and Ultima Online and, uh, you know, built up a business that was doing $100 million a year of revenue. I think I was making more revenue off of EverQuest than Sony Online or Entertainment was. Certainly, I was in roughly the same ballpark as the uh, as the game creators. But the problem I had is I had too much demand, and I couldn't get enough inventory uh, because there weren't enough people to meet the demand of the players that you know the have-nots that had dollars uh, far exceeded you know the people that wanted to sell the things they had in the game. So I, I had to find people to play the games to to produce inventory. And so I moved over to, to China in 2002 and taught the Chinese how to play games and to make money. And back then you could make $100 a day playing games, meaning you'd make more money back in China in 2002 than you were if you were, you know, a so-so doctor or lawyer, meaning it, 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 the economic incentive was so great that we were able to create a, a really robust, you know, industry of what we called, what was called eventually Chinese gold farmers. But um, we built up a supply chain of 400,000 people in China that would play games professionally to mine the digital currencies that then we would sell all over the world. And I rolled up the Korean market, you know, had over 90% market share over there. I became PayPal's largest merchant in the, in the world for a few years. I was Google's largest advertiser for a little while when AdSense first launched. I helped launch the Alipay business. And so I became very familiar with, fin, you know, basically payment systems because a lot of the payment companies viewed us as gambling companies, even though we weren't gambling. And so I had to learn, you know, how to deal with, you know, call it the difficult side of the, uh, the merchant processing business. And then I also had to deal with cross-border payments before these systems were easy to use. And so it was a, a really interesting learning experience. And, you know, we did 10 plus billion dollars of sales. You know, that was really the thing that kind of prepared me for getting into this space. And it's worth noting because it's something that most people don't recognize is that gamers around the world are largely responsible for the success of everything that we see in the space. Obviously, the cypherpunks and others did a lot of the early development, but most of the adoption around the world and early buyers of cryptocurrencies and a lot of the entrepreneurs that have built things um, and the markets, obviously, like South Korea and China are so successful because those markets were the most robust. You know, gamers that were already used to, you know, collecting digital currencies and recognize that those things had value, even though it would not be intuitive to most people, the learning curve to saying, oh, Bitcoin could have value or these other things might have value. It was a much easier learning curve. I also found the same to be true of like poker players. 
poker players were, you know, big early adopters of things like Bitcoin because they were used to using casino chips, whether they were physical or digital to play their games. They could travel from Las Vegas to Macau and they could use their $25,000 chip from the Bellagio and buy into the poker game. And so they kind of got used to using, you know, an alternative currency. And, uh, you know, it's call it gamers around the world that have driven a lot of the adoption in the space. That's something that's often overlooked. Man, I tell you what, I don't know that uh, I know that I did not know any of that about you, dude. So I think that is completely fascinating. And I must be completely wrong when I'm telling my kid to stop playing so many freaking video games. You're wasting your time, dude. I've He's been like, trying to tell you, Travis. Come <laughs> on, dude. Do you know, in, in these games, they sell, I remember, of course, you know, Brock, when TF2 started selling hats in game, uh, you know, because people just wanted cosmetics for how they look and they pay real world money so that they could put this different cart set of cartoon pixels on their cartoon body. Well, yeah, human behavior doesn't change whether you're in the physical world or the digital world. The same things that motivate us, you know, are true, you know, wherever we are. So when you're playing a game, people would ask me, they'd say, that's crazy. Why would someone spend thousands of dollars on stuff in a video game? I go, well, what is your hobby? And they'd be like, golf. I go, how much money do you spend on your golf clubs? What do you pay for your golf memberships? That's a game. And just because you prefer to play golf in the physical world, how is that any different than someone that prefers to play in a fantasy world, you know, swinging their, you know, sword of fire and, you know, slaying dragons? It's whatever, however you choose to spend your discretionary time, people are going to spend money for the same reasons. And they're normally twofold. One, they want to buy utility. They want to improve the utility of their experience. They want to have a better sword or a better club, or they want to improve their social status. You know, they want to make themselves look cooler. They want people to want to talk to them, invite them into their guilds, invite them to go play golf, you know, attract, you know, the girl or the guy. You know, it's, it's the same things that motivate us in both worlds. Are, I mean, it's the same motivations. That's, that's where it came from. And so because I had been, you know, uh, I think Wired called me the, uh, the godfather of digital currency. And uh, I think uh, December 2008. Wait a second. So you're Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> We're all Satoshi. <laughs> I'm Satoshi. And here, so folks, my dog. We, we just broke it. Brock Pierce and Satoshi Nakamoto. Lock <laughs> it up. There it is. Wow. Um, and so, so then, from digital currencies and video games into digital currencies and cryptocurrencies, when did you make that shift? Was that 2008, 2009? Well, so what had happened is I was looking at buying Points.com and taking over the secondary markets for the airline industries and you know, lots of other markets because, you know, I was in, I had done it in the gaming industry. Why not go look at other marketplaces? And then everyone that was looking at creating community currencies or, uh, you know, anyone that had kind of a new currency idea for the most part, eventually would come to me going, Hey, you know, I want to chat with you about this idea. And so I'd kick the tires on, you know, many ideas on how to, you know, create new types of currency, uh, you know, in the real world, uh, especially. And so when Bitcoin was first brought to me, I, I, I think it was late 2009, maybe early 2010, I got a call and someone said, hey, what do you think of this Bitcoin thing? And I, I, I actually hadn't heard of it at the time, which was kind of embarrassing. And I was supposed to be this guru. So I didn't want to admit that. So I, I, I said, uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm on another call. Let me call you right back. Um, and then I went and downloaded the white paper and took, you know, 15 minutes to try and 
form a, uh, a thesis and, and return the phone call. And I'm like, hey, sorry about that. Uh, what did you want to talk about again? And they're like, Bitcoin. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 Bitcoin, Bitcoin, of course. What, what do you want to know? And they're like, what do you think? Has this thing got any potential? And I'm like, well, that or something like it is clearly the future. I just don't know if the future is now or 25 years from now. And that was my, 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 my brilliant thought that I was able to come up with, you know, <laughs> in all of a moment, which I think was probably still the right answer. Obviously, now we have the benefit of hindsight. And the future clearly was then or now, as we'd say. Um, but, you know, market timing is always one of those things difficult to, you know, pin down. And so I, I started following, you know, what was going on in the Bitcoin space and but not making it, you know, a meaningful focus until 2012. In 2012, well, in 2011, I got pulled into this think tank and I was supposed to talk about, you know, Bitcoin. And I wasn't nearly as knowledgeable as I should have been considering the types of people that I was, you know, supposedly educating as an expert on digital currency, which then made me dive in deeper. And then in 2012, I was asked to uh, speak at the Milken Global Conference and put together the Bitcoin discussion, took a deeper dive. And it was really following that event that I started reconnecting with old friends of mine like Jesse Powell of Kraken, who used to run another uh, game currency trading site called loot.com, L E W T. So like hacker speak and leet, but loot and, uh, uh, John Holmquist and, uh, you know, a number of people and some of my old partners, John Yantis. And the thesis evolved over time into, um, the future is now I'm like, all right, now what? I'm like, the legal issues are obviously going to be a big deal. I'm, you know, a high enough profile person that if I, you know, put my name, you know, out there in a big way in this space, I don't know what governments are going to do. You know, this might ruin my life. And so I spent um, probably about six months operating as what Eric Voorhees called me, a Bitcoin ninja, and uh, was just trying to keep my name out of the public domain for a little while. And because I, I spent a lot of nights tossing and turning going, you know, clearly I see the market opportunity, but am I prepared to die for this? And that was literally the, 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 the thought that I was going through. I'm like, Brock, you know, this, this space, you know, the governments might come down on it in a way where you're going to be, uh, you'd obviously be one of the highest profile targets just automatically by doing anything in it. And that really bothered me for a little while until I eventually said, all right. The U.S., for example, is only one country, albeit a very big one. The world's a very big place. You've got two-thirds of the population of the planet that's unbanked. And, you know, there's, this is going to develop in a lot of different ways. You can hire enough lawyers to dot your I's and cross your T's and, and not operate in the U.S. for a while until you get a better sense of how that's going to play out. And so that's when I started operating in the space and I started founding companies every 45 days, companies like GoCoin Go and Blade and Express Coin and Zenbox. We built the first Bitcoin ATM network, the biggest in the world at the time. I was the exclusive distributor for KNC miners equipment in China. I was the exclusive distributor for the first Bitcoin ATM, RoboCoin for all of Asia. I hired CZ to be the CEO of that and gave him his first job in the space. And so I was just launching business after business, Tether, et cetera, uh, Noble Bank, the first crypto bank and the biggest for a while. And so I was just building business after business. And in the background, 
I was recognizing there's only so many companies I can like try and build and run simultaneously. And so then I started investing in, in startups as well, which is how blockchain capital came about. Uh, the first fund was just taking 20 friends in the space, you know, Bobby Lee and Charlie Lee and, you know, a bunch of other dudes, Matt Rozak, et cetera. My partners, Bart and Brad Stevens. And we just started putting 50K checks into all of the interesting startups in fund one. And then uh, Bart, Brad and I said, well, no one's created a, a fund yet to invest in Bitcoin or what we eventually called blockchain you know, businesses, let's, let's create the first venture fund and like really formalize this. And that's how blockchain capital sort of uh, emerged. And then fund two was a very real fund and fund three, obviously we did the first security token. Uh, and then uh, fund four is now a, a, a fairly large $150 million fund. And so, you know, that evolved into an interesting business. We funded about a hundred different startups in the space. I also got involved in investing in other cryptocurrencies. And so uh, a couple of partners and I were the, you know, some of the main investors in, in MasterCoin. And, you know, uh, you know, we all got very involved in that, which was the first ICO ever done in the space, which uh, uh, was uh, another interesting sort of experience. And, you know, just kind of do as much as you can. I was just so excited by the potential and the prospects for the industry uh, I, I just, I, I couldn't pick any one thing. It was like, I, I was having not just ADD, it was like ADHD, entrepreneurial ADHD. It was like, couldn't focus on one thing. And so I was just starting as many things and investing in as many things as I possibly could. And I did that for years. Yeah, yeah but Brock, when are you going to do something with your life? <laughs> yeah. It's long. What a, what a stellar career of, uh, you know, entrepreneurial spirit. I love it. Well, when I mean, well, when you go into a space and you literally make the decision that doing this may cost you your life, most people don't ever make that type of commitment to uh, to a project. You know, if anything, maybe their kids. You know, I mean, it's very rare that people, you know, really go all in uh, and you know jump out of the plane and plan on making the parachute on the way down. Right. And so when you make that, when you, when you've gone through that sort of mental exercise and then kind of, it's like skydiving. If you've ever done it, when you're standing at that plane at that door and you're looking out that window and every instinct in your body is saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. It's like every alarm bell possible is ringing. And then you jump. It's the, it's the, it's, well, there's this Zen moment that happens uh, right before the jump because your whole body is panicking. And then somehow you make the decision to jump and all of a sudden you get hit with this moment of perfect Zen peace and then you're out the door and then all of a sudden you're flying fast and wind is passing and then you're going, what did I do? What did I do? What did I do? And then a couple you know, seconds later, you're like, ah, this is cool. <laughs> Hopefully the parachute works. Yeah, no joke. Now, <laughs> but there's no turning, there's no, there's no turning back at that point, right? That's so true. And you're talking about how, you know, you're, you're putting your life on the line and it's true. People who pop their head up, you know, in some cases there's the, the government will whack a mole. Right. And if you're coming out and creating new currencies and threatening big, you know, monolithic organizations like World Bank and the, you know, the you know uh, Federal Reserve banking system and fiat currency in general. I mean, that's something that if they feel threatened, you know, then then they can sort of you know, put their trump down. I want to ask a question specifically around this because I find it very interesting. And you're one of the guys I think would know, 
because, you know, the NSA, they are behind, you know, the SHA-256 cryptographic hash function, right? They created that. They were one of the, the, the designers of that. And there was a, the NSA wrote a paper on digital currency back in 1996, like how it's called How to Make a Mint. And one of the people who were, was on the team, his, na- his or her name was Tatsuki Akamoto. <laughs> and it's just it's just so interesting to me. And I've always had this question. I've asked it to a few people. I mean, you know, and then Nick Zabo, he had bit gold and he wasn't referenced on the Satoshi paper. And in, in this NSA paper was created. I mean, do you think the NSA maybe had a heavy hand in creating Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? And that's why they've sort of let it flourish a little bit because they kind of wanted it to seed and grow. Yeah. So, um, I have the paper you're referring to in my hand, which is uh, from the NSA in 1996, June 18th. And it's called How to Make a Mint, the Cryptography of Anonymous Electronic Cash. And they wrote the original sort of white paper for all of this. And so they certainly had a hand in putting the idea out there. uh, And they definitely get the credit for having, you know, pioneered the concept. Uh, Most people don't look this far back. I'm impressed that you guys are aware of that. This is a document that most people in the space, very few of us are aware of. Yeah, normally, you know, BitGold normally gets kind of the credit and HashCash, you know, kind of gets the credit for having, uh, you know, been there first, but no, the NSA was. (laughs) It's crazy. It's crazy to think about it. It's one of those things that I look at it and I go, hmm, you know, if they ever did want to create a one world currency, you know, paper money is not going to do it. Digital currency would be the one to potentially do that. And then the fact that this paper came out, you know, 13 years before Satoshi's white paper came out, it's one of those things that always kind of makes me go, hmm, you know, I, just, I don't have the answer to it, but it just, something just tweaks my intuition with it. Well, I mean, I, I, I think they can definitely be credited with the, uh, you know, being one of the creators. That doesn't mean that they're one of the creators of Bitcoin. But um, certainly one of the call it the, the, this is part of the reason I say we're all Satoshi. You know, the successes have many fathers and mothers and, and failures are all orphans. And so, you know, there's a lot of people that have, you know, contributed, you know, to the success of this ecosystem. And a lot of those people were even contributing in many ways prior to the Bitcoin white paper being released. Obviously, there's a, a specific group of people that wrote the Bitcoin white paper and coded the first uh, release of, of the Bitcoin blockchain. But, uh, you know, we've all contributed in our own ways. And I like to tell people, even if you're joining now, you know, we're all Satoshi. It's a movement, right? But there, but uh, there is somebody, Brock, that's got a million Bitcoin in that wallet, right? I mean, that actually is in someone's possession. Well, the main, the main thing that um, the main piece of information that can be researched and discovered online is if you research what's called the Tulip Trust. And the Tulip Trust allegedly is what holds that million Bitcoin. And it's in a trust. Interesting. I've not heard that. We're going to link to that in the show notes. And by the way, those of you who want to follow along at home, you'll find the show notes for this episode at badco.in forward slash 
219. I want to jump ahead here, Brock, because there's so many things we could talk about in terms of development of EOS and Block One and, and so on. But let's let's jump to right here, right now. We're recording this mid-December 2018. We've seen over the past year a dramatic rise and fall in crypto. Um, where are we on the timeline from your point of view? Well, I, we're going through, obviously, another one of these cycles. You know, the market, it's like a pendulum. It swings, but it keeps going up. And I think these are great events. I, I'm really happy when the market is down. I love these bear markets. I know it, it's tough, you know, for everybody when, you know, you, you see your, you know, your fiat balance is really all that's changed. But you're looking at your fiat net worth and, you know, and you're feeling like, wow, I felt really rich yesterday. I don't feel so rich or rich at all anymore, right? But I really enjoy these moments. Uh, for one, anytime we have one of these big run-ups, it attracts a lot of the wrong people. You know, basically all the cockroaches come out. A bunch of people are in the space for the wrong reasons. A lot of scams start to happen. A lot of good people running in with FOMO, getting ripped off. You know, there's a lot of bad things that happen when we get these really rapid run-ups in price. And, you know, we get these corrections every time because the market is obviously ran far ahead of where it's supposed to be. These events are kind of like a purging. You know, it's a cleansing. You know, it kind of gets rid of all the weak hands. It gets rid of the people that are here for the wrong reason. And what's left, you know, through each of these cycles are the true believers. And it's really hard to build successful projects in, you know, really strong bull markets because the markets become irrational. Everyone's throwing money around in ways that is not, you know, thoughtful or frugal. Uh, no one wants to stick to a project for more than 30, 60, 90 days because they th start thinking about their own ICO. And, you know, very little actually gets developed, you know, in those bull markets. But when we get into these bear markets, if you weather the storm, you know, if you hunker down, batten the hatches, you know, real important infrastructure gets built. You know, great projects are developed during these moments. You know, these are the times where, you know, I'm eager to get back to work. When the markets start becoming irrational, you know, I, I want to basically go check out for a little while because I know it's, you know, just always going to be another one of these rides that, you know, ends with a lot of pain and suffering. And it's really sad because a lot of newcomers often come in during that phase. You know, they buy in at the top of the market, getting all excited about the prospects of what can happen here. And then they ride it down and average down and, you know, they get all depressed and a bunch of them leave, you know, going, you know, screw this scam. You know, this is horrible because they had a really bad, you know, call it onboarding experience. Um, so I, 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 you know, obviously I don't like seeing anyone lose money. Certainly, uh, you know, good people that are trying to do things the right way. But these are, you know, it's a necessary cleansing process. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about, I think you made some great points here, man, dude. I mean, you're, you're blowing me away with some of the stuff here. I, I've not, I've not known some of this. So I think this is, this is great. This will, I think we're going to have to have you back on for a few other episodes to dive in specifically on, on some of these topics. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Puerto Rico, right? Because I know you've, re you've received a little bit of flack about that. People, some local citizens were kind of going off. I saw some videos, but I don't really know the specifics, but it seems to me that you're trying to do some really cool stuff and build up Puerto Rico, you know, in, in some great ways after that huge, horrific hurricane that came through. So maybe, you know, what's, 
What's the update on Puerto Rico? What's going on with that? And maybe people who haven't heard some of the backstory, maybe give us a little bit of 411 on that. Puerto Rico came about for a couple of reasons. One, I, I used to come down here as a teenager, but later when uh, in 2013, one of the problems the sector had was most companies couldn't get a bank account. And so people were running their crypto business uh, using personal accounts or they were creating up business accounts, but not adequately disclosing to the bank the nature of the business, which is technically a felony. And so I was just looking at this as a systemic risk to the ecosystem. And so I said, well, if the banks are not going to bank most of us, why don't we become a bank? And so I started taking a deep dive into what it would take to buy a state chartered bank, a federally chartered bank, you know, understanding how credit union and co-op sort of rules work. And could we establish, you know, a credit union, take over a credit union, you know, start a bank, buy a bank. And so I was going down that process and actually got a list of every bank for sale in the U.S. And I was, you know, starting to run a process and I was just looking at it. It's going to take like $25 million and take two or three years if it can even get done. It would be buying a distressed bank. And if banking isn't a problem three years from now, then I'm going to be stuck with a distressed bank and no business plan and no qualifications to run one. I'm like, this doesn't sound like a great idea. And that's not a small check. You know, startups in, in, in our space back in 2013, 2014, we're not raising $25 million. You know, so to buy a bank last year for $25 million was very feasible. To buy a bank back in 2013, 2014 would have been a, you know, a very big bet. And so I'm like, I'm a hacker. There's got to be a better way. And in that moment, I'm like, wait, what about the U.S. Virgin Islands? What about Guam? What about Puerto Rico? Maybe they're the back door. And literally, like, within 24 hours, I got contacted by a buddy of mine who said, hey, are you familiar with these Puerto Rican tax laws? This Act 2022 stuff? I'm like, no, what is it? He goes, here's what it is. Here's some forms, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and the guy that runs that whole program wants to talk to you. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'd love to talk to him. I get on the phone with him. He starts telling me about the you know, opportunities around taxes down here. I said, I'm not interested in, in the taxes. You know, I've got work to do and the opportunity cost is too great. I've got to be out in the world. But I, I have a question I want to ask you since it sounds like you're the expert. Tell me about banking in Puerto Rico. Would it be possible to set up a bank for crypto in Puerto Rico? And he goes, as a matter of fact, these same laws, there's another one called the Act 273 that allows you to create a new type of financial institution. And a bunch of people have used them for hedge funds, but no one has actually used it to create a bank, which was what it was intended for. He goes, no one's done it yet, but I know how to do it. I'm like, I'm getting on a plane. And so came down here and we ended up setting up a bank in, in 2014 called Noble Bank, which became the biggest crypto bank for a little while. You know, it was banking Bitfinex and Tether and all these things. Uh, I've had no involvement in the business since uh, early 2016, but it ended up becoming, you know, the biggest crypto bank in the world. It was, uh, you know, very successful. Sounds like they've been having some issues lately and they, I think, just got sold. But um, uh, I'm not up to speed on it. But, uh, you know, it was, it was a great learning experience. And that's what really introduced me to Puerto Rico and call it this stage of my life. And then I told a bunch of uh, my friends in the uh, space here that are American, I said, you know, when, when Bitcoin hits five or 10 grand, you know, we're all going to move to Puerto Rico. Um, and they're like, why? I go, well, here's why. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> like, that makes sense. And so when Bitcoin had its run up, you know, call it two years ago, 
I said, all right, we're going to move to Puerto Rico in December 2018, which is actually what month it is now. Mm-hmm. And then the hurricane hit. Mm. And I said, oh, well, I guess change of plans. Let's go now and let's go make a difference. Let's go help people. If we're going to go benefit from this, let's go, pe- go be people that give back. And uh, a bunch of us started moving late last year. Uh, Michael Turpin was patient zero. He was the first one to move. And when Michael found out about the benefits, like I think he packed up and moved the next day. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we came down here, you know, trying to figure out how to make as positive an impact on the island as possible, how to help, you know, the Puerto Rican people. So the last year, you know, it's really been research and development, getting to know the island, getting to know the people, getting to know the culture and doing all the little things we can, like coordinating, painting beautiful murals in the neighborhoods that need it the most, putting solar panels on, on homes that are without electricity, putting roofs on homes without roofs, feeding people, creating community, throwing events, teaching people, uh, donating money to the university, rebuilding libraries, building hackathons, uh, putting together, you know, all the things that, you know, you can in little ways, you know, during that call it, you know, first year. So now that we're in our second year, you know, now we're really looking at kind of what are the, the big things that we can do and the most interesting stuff. And I'd say if this message resonates with you, you know, if this calls to you, this might be, you know, something that, you know, whoever the listeners are that you should pay attention to. So here's a few just facts on Puerto Rico. Obviously, most people have heard about the hurricane. Obviously, it was devastating. But, you know, the island will recover from that. Uh, the bigger, you know, issue is that it's also embroiled with a massive, massive amount of debt. These Puerto Rican bonds ended up being, you know, people were buying into Puerto Rican bonds thinking they were state bonds, but they're not federally guaranteed. So it turned into a massive nightmare. All the pensions are, you know, busted. All the municipalities are bankrupt. So major economic hardship at the same time, you know, right when things are pretty bad, obviously the hurricane came at, couldn't have come at a worse time. But the bigger systemic issue is what I call the brain drain. And so the first, the people with the intellectual capital, the human capital, the financial capital, the spiritual capital, you know, when things get really, really tough like this, you know, they're the first to leave because they have the means to do so. And so you've got many millions of Puerto Ricans in the United States that are part of the diaspora, living in New York, living in Chicago, living in Florida, because there's just much more opportunity. Certainly don't fault them for that. But when when you're consistently losing, call it your leaders, and then on top of that, you've got the number 15 engineering school in Puerto Rico. NASA, Facebook, Google, Exxon have full-time recruiters just hovering over the place because there's no jobs down here. So there's incredible engineers being produced in Puerto Rico, but there's no real opportunity. And so it's a wonderful place to recruit people to move to Silicon Valley or wherever else. And so there's tons of talented Puerto Ricans you know, all over the U.S. working for tech companies, venture funds, all sorts of things, NASA, space programs and the likes, because incredibly talented people. But because there's no opportunity, they're leaving, too. So when you're losing your leaders and you're losing your future leaders, and that's something that's happening consistently, you know, over the long term, the brain drain is the biggest problem. And so how do you solve a brain drain with a brain game by People returning from the diaspora, bringing their skills and talents back to Puerto Rico because now there are opportunities by bringing in people like us that show up with integrity, that try to do good things that are not here to, you know, that are here to try and help Puerto Ricans make the most of the opportunities that they have. 
And some examples of the areas that we focus on, obviously tech, because most of us are tech people. And we've gotten very involved in the tech startup communities, you know, with hackathons and the accelerators and the co-working facilities. A lot of us, because we've been successful, have become angels. And so since there's now a lot of angels on the island, which they never had before, angel investors, that is, you know, there's now an ability for Puerto Ricans that have startup ideas to get funded. That's never been the case before. You also have a lot of mentors now, people that have been there, done that, that can help, you know, guide, you know, first time entrepreneurs or second time entrepreneurs because of the experience that we're able to share. We're also setting up venture capital, you know, down here. There's never been a Puerto Rican venture funded company. I will bet in the next six months that you're going to see three startups out of Puerto Rico that have raised over a million dollars. Nothing like that has ever happened before. And the news down here will pick that up, that now you've got Puerto Rican companies that have been funded for the first time ever. All of a sudden, what it tells students and it tells people here, that is, if you have a dream, there's a possibility for that dream to become reality. That was not the case before. If you had a dream, you had to leave. And these sort of little things over time can make a huge difference over the course of a decade. Other things, for example, outside of tech and angel investing and mentoring and venture investing, you know, and helping the startup community and throwing the hackathons. You know, there's only 89% of the food on this island is um, imported. The island only has two weeks of food. You know, from a resiliency perspective, the hurricane obviously didn't set off supply chains. Aid was able to make its way in. But what if something happened, something more disastrous that, you know, upset the supply chain? It's a huge issue. You know, if you're out there and you're into permaculture you're into figuring out how to build co-ops, how to build community around agriculture. You know, it's, this, is, this is a call to action. Your help is needed down here. You know, we need to help Puerto Ricans learn how to, you know, grow good food on the island. It's essential long-term to its survival. All right, so it's a really big deal. You know, from an energy perspective, obviously, you know, the, the hurricane was the equivalent of an EMP bomb hitting the island. The island survived, you know, the equivalent of electronic magnetic pulse sort of explosion. But we've learned where all the problems are and there's opportunities to start working with microgrids and smart grids. Um, and it is the United States. So the things that you accomplish here and prove out here, once you've done it in the United States, in Puerto Rico, you're going to be far better off trying to take that into other U.S. markets, other municipalities, if you know, you're trying to work on next generation energy grids and focusing on how to build more resilient distributed energy grids that don't have so many single points of failure. You know, so there's a lot of stuff that we're down here trying to do, support the arts, help the students. I mean, we're doing everything we can. <laughs> you know, yeah, we've gotten a little bit of flack. Most of what you've seen in the media is not representative of reality because the media tries to sensationalize things because that's what sells. And I'm, I'm glad they did. You know, not nearly as many people would have watched it had it not had, you know, a little bit of drama in it. But I've only had, I think, four conversations in my entire dime down here. And I'm very out there, public, walk the streets, available to connect with everyone, going to every event I can. I've only had four confrontational conversations in my entire time. And most of them are what you see in the media. It's, it's almost like they were planted because <laughs> it doesn't seem to happen otherwise. But the reality is, yes, there is a lot of skepticism down here from anyone that's new to the island. But you have to think about the history. When Christopher Columbus sailed across the Atlantic in 1492, you know, he first landed in the Bahamas and he shortly thereafter landed in Puerto Rico in early 1493. And this is where he set up shop. 
So all of Europe's influence on the Americas, all of it, all of the New World, North, South America, the Caribbean, it all started here. This is ground zero. So everything that's happened to the indigenous people of the, of the Americas all started here. And so for 500 years, this place has dealt with conquistadors and people that have come down here and taken advantage of them. And when you have 500 years of history like that, it's natural that people are going to be skeptical. But almost all of them are hopeful. I have, I mean, I can't even count the number of conversations I've had with Puerto Ricans down here, and they've got a lot of questions. They're very curious, very inquisitive minds. But they're also very excited about anything that could positively help their island and people that are down here with intentions and integrity to do good work. And so there's obviously a a fair amount of skepticism, but most of it translates to hope, hope that we do the right thing, hope that we're actually here for the reasons we say, hope we actually make some of the impact that we talk about. You know, that's that's the reality of the situation. That's what we call doing good stuff down there. I, I heard uh, birds in the background. I'm assuming that's because you were outside and there's all kinds of tropical creatures flying around there. Well, I know I live right next to the uh, uh, Parque de Palomas or the Park of Pigeons. And so the building I live in and under my door is basically old, ancient walls. It's one of the first buildings built down here. And so I, I live in like the most bird you know, area. I closed the door because it was getting a little loud. So, Brock, we really appreciate you joining us. We are going to have to have you back again if if you'll be had. But I want to close out with uh, your predictions for 2019. Let's look to the future and uh, be as specific as you want to be. Yes, please. And obviously, I, I having spent some quality time with you guys in Vegas, I, I think you're both awesome. Love your personalities. Love your uh, comedic wit. Uh, you, you guys are, you're, you're both a for, you're forces of nature and, uh, and, and I love the work that you do. The media has a very important role, you know, in the space of going out there and finding, you know, stories and being able to present that because, you know, ultimately people need to be informed. But as far as the, uh, you say the sweetest things, Brock out, Pierce. That was, so that was very sweet. We love you too, Mr. Brock Pierce. You are officially Mr. Brock Pierce now. You get, you get the, you get the Mr. thrown on. Yeah. So at end of 2018, beginning of 2019, as you know, we start thinking about the year ahead, you know, what would I forecast? It's actually pretty positive. You know, I can't really speak to the crypto price because there's, you know, the price itself is the primary barometer of sentiment. You know, it doesn't really track fundamentals. They don't, you know, kind of go hand in hand, though there is some correlation. You know, that's where the hype kind of goes. But the fundamentals of the space are continually up and to the right. They always are. The price kind of has its own uh, thing. So I, I, I'm not a person that's good at timing markets, but the sort of things that would, that could change that, you know, are, are, are the things that I think are going to happen in the next year that are call it big ticket items. The things that are going to fundamentally, you know, upgrade the market. One is that we're still waiting for, you know, killer apps where most of what we talk about in this space is still theoretical. Obviously we have, Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency, a store of value, however you want to perceive that. And some of those call it use cases of the technology. Obviously, ICOs became a a killer app that was disrupting venture capital and changing the way that capital formation works. You know, and that was happening for a little while. That's obviously slowed down. 
but I don't think it's going to slow down long term. I think that this sector is going to continue to disrupt, call it capital formation. It'll probably emerge mostly, not entirely. I don't think utility tokens are going away. I think there are still great use cases for utility tokens. And long term, utility tokens might be the future 10 or 20 years from now. The problem is most utility tokens don't actually provide enough utility, nor are they architected well enough. Great utility tokens need to be like Leonardo da Vinci masterpieces. And most of the utility tokens that we're looking at are far from that. You know, they're hack jobs. So, and so you need a lot of flexibility around projects if they're not going to be launched with perfection, right? If they're not going to come out the gate a la Bitcoin, you know, as a masterpiece, you know, as one of the greatest, you know, things ever created and to get it as right as it did in its first shot is just a phenomenal thing to, 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 to look at and to stand in awe of and admire. Um, but the security tokens, I think, are going to be a huge deal uh, for 2019. Uh, back at BCAP, we did the first security token because I've had this opinion for some time. But we launched that to open source the idea, knowing that the infrastructure wasn't going to be there for it. You need the bridges, the roads, and tunnels you know, for that to really work. And in that case, you need exchanges that are compliantly able to support security tokens. Security tokens are going to be giving birth to a quadrillion dollar market. Yes, a quadrillion. A million is a thousand, you know, a billion is a thousand million, a trillion is a thousand billion, a quadrillion is a thousand that's trillion. Some, that's a lot of zeros. Yeah. And so here, I, I say this not laughingly. It's called, we're watching the world's currencies, you know, call it cryptocurrencies and fiat beginning to tokenize. We're going to be watching the world's debt markets and bond markets tokenized. We're going to be watching the world's equity markets tokenized. We're going to be watching the world's real estate markets tokenized. Things like energy, when you start thinking about how the entire world is going to tokenize, you know, we are going to see the birth of a quadrillion dollar market. And so the equity piece is the one I want to focus at for next year. Real estate's going to be a couple of years longer, but we're going to see, you know, more transactions beginning. That'll just take longer to develop. But I think the equity markets are going to be a very interesting one where if I was a startup today having nothing to do with blockchain or crypto, I would be looking at doing a security token. And the reasons why are the same reason that ICOs were so popular or crowdfunding has been so popular. This is really just taking the Jobs Act and applying it to blockchain and throwing on that sort of ICO phenomenon into it, which is most people can't invest in a venture fund because the average venture fund takes 10 or 15 years to get liquidity. Most people can't afford to have their capital locked up that long. By tokenizing you know, earlier stage businesses, you're essentially going public at a series A or series B level. And so I think we're going to be watching uh, a market emerge for early stage companies that will disrupt, you know, capital formation of late stage VC in the same way we thought ICOs were, but it's really going to be STOs that are going to do most of that. And then start looking at the later stage public companies. You know, if you're on the NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange, London, Australia, Toronto, whatever, think about the public markets today. They run on exchanges that run from nine to four on weekdays. They run on, uh, they're local by nature. They use really slow, inefficient, insecure technology versus building on global platforms that run 24 by seven, that operate 365 days a year, that are all interoperable. 
I mean, that story is going to end this way. I mean, that's why NASDAQ is so heavily invested in this space, the New York Stock, because the, the stock exchanges recognize that the public markets are going to get tokenized in the form of a security token. So that's going to be a huge, huge opportunity. Other things that are worth noting, you know, it's not just crypto that's having a bad day, but the internet is insecure. The internet is broken. The internet was built on a faulty foundation. It was essentially built on sand because it's not secure. It was known how to secure it when it was first being developed, but we didn't, the, the, the computer processing capabilities at the time were not there to implement it. And then there were parties that wanted backdoors. They didn't want it to be secure. The problem now is hackers are getting better and better and better. You now have state-sponsored hackers. You have nation states that are building teams and allowing hacking, meaning it's legal, it's state-sponsored, it's military. So now that you have state-sponsored hacking and hackers around the world are getting better and better, the internet is broken. The internet is going to have to be upgraded. I believe everything on a new technology stack, and I believe blockchain is going to be the security layer that enables that. So when you start thinking about that, it's going to be a jump ball for everything. It's going to be driven not just by the things that we've been building in our experimentations. It's going to be driven by the fact that these old systems are insecure and vulnerable, and they're going to have to get upgraded at some point because they're going to fail. And so that's going to create a, a, a huge opportunity. I also, you know, I, I don't want to uh, sell EOS uh, because I'm chain agnostic. I believe that, you know, this concept of my chain is better than your chain is very similar to religious fundamentalism. And we've learned over thousands of years that that doesn't work and it's a bad idea. My belief is if anyone builds something that positively makes the world a better place, good for you. You know, I'm all for it. And we should be supporting each other more, a lot less hate. If you're seeing good people doing good things or at least trying, obviously call out the, call out the bad actors. But, um, you know, we need to do more to support people um, rather than being maximalists and saying, because I've got so many of this token and because it's in my self-interest that that thing succeeds, I'm just going to hate on everyone. But on that note, I want to talk about something that EOS did do. EOS is the first sort of generation three blockchain that is highly scalable, low latency, very fast transactions, and has no friction. You don't need any currency to access it. You don't need to have tokens to be able to access a basic service, which is what you need to create real consumer dApps. So the EOS blockchain is the first, won't be the last. There will be many others that are able to do this over time. But we now have the ability to build consumer dApps that can have a million users a day. That has not been possible the last 10 years. This is the first time we can do that. And other chains will be able to do that. I believe we've just had our Netscape moment. I believe we've just had the moment, which is the equivalent of the app store in the iPhone being released. Now, obviously, the first websites made and the first apps that went into the app store, you know, were obviously very early and it took years for those things to catch on. But I believe we've had that moment which means next year, I believe we're going to see our first app that has a million users. We're going to start to see things that make, you know, this is what the market's really been waiting for. They've been waiting for us to hit prime time and to actually start delivering highly scalable apps with lots of users. They've been, you know, tired of prototypes. They've been tired of things that don't have enough users or don't work very well. We are now at a point that I think that can happen. Um, I think we're going to see incredible gaming applications built on these platforms uh, we're starting to see in the Philippines now, 5% of the population of the Philippines have a blockchain wallet. We're starting to see real financial inclusion 
being enabled by this technology. And these are the things we need. The market needs to start seeing real examples of real things working and scaling. You know, they're tired of ideas. They want to see, you know, stuff start to work. And I think 2019 is our Netscape year. I mean, we're going to start to see, you know, real consumer adoption. And so I couldn't be more excited about the year ahead. Uh, when the price goes up, I have no idea. But these sorts of things coming to fruition, I think are going to most likely be the triggers for it. Obviously, the other things that could do that are, I don't know if you saw the Janet Yellen piece that came out yesterday, but uh, call it the broader financial markets are are not looking very good right now either. And if there's obviously some major disruption that happens in the traditional financial markets, things like real estate, gold, and cryptocurrency. But the real question well. is, is when will crypto kitties be driving a Lambo on the moon? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I, they should call what, what someone just needs to breed a, a, a moon kitty and, uh, and, 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 and uh, a space kitty and, uh, <laughs> and a spaceship and virtually send that Lambo to the moon for the kitty. There might be a market for that. That one probably well, would sell for like a hundred grand. <laughs> uh, Brock, where do you like for people to connect with you? Well, um, I Twitter is, is a very easy place, which is at Brock Pierce. I don't post a lot of content. I post a little, but I actually am. I'm, I'm fairly responsive. I reply to most anyone that messages me there. So um, I'm not an active Twitter user in terms of posting a lot of content. But if you want to reach out to me, if you want to try and connect, if you've got questions, I do my best with the time that I have to be as responsive as I can. Uh, you can also go to brockpierce.io. You know, and I'm, I'm on most messaging platforms. I do my best to respond to everyone. Uh, I can't, I'm not successful at it always, but uh, I, I do my absolute best. I, uh, I, I live my life in service and uh, I, I, I make time for those people that are trying to do the, I'm not, I'm not interested in, you know, what the next idea is that's going to make a bunch of money. You know, if you pitch me, hey, I got a way for you to make some money. It's like, that's the time you probably don't get a reply. You know, if you have ideas on how to make the world a better place, those are how I, I only have so much time. I prioritize to, you know, people that are trying to make a positive impact in the world. And I, I make my time available to them first. I think that Brock delivered and over-delivered. Really grateful that he took the time for this interview. Looking forward to meeting him sometime in Crypto Rico, if not again sooner, and hanging out. I think he dug us, too. He, and you know what? It's like I've met him now a couple of times, and um, he's always really gracious. He's, you know, he's attentive. He's not... He's not like, you know, even this dude's probably a billionaire a couple times over. I mean, who knows if he's gone that far back into digital assets and money, like he's been in this game a long time. And so it was just, it was just mind blowing to talk to him. The guy's so down to earth and so real. He wants to make the world a better place. He likes to do good stuff. And we're all about that. Yeah, absolutely. And that was indeed real talk. And by the way, you guys may have noticed that episode 218 didn't happen. You may not have noticed. It might have completely gone by and you're like, oh, no, it did happen to bad news. We, we, got, some bad, we got some bad news for you. <laughs> we got some bad news. I mean, it's really amazing that the recording we're doing right now is working because something's going on with Travis's technology on the other side of the world. And we tried to start recording episode 218 five times using different methods of recording and it failed every time. It's really amazing that we've gotten this far with this episode. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get this, you know, I, I didn't have technological problems when we recorded with Brock 
I just ended up moving to a different hotel, and I don't know if it's something going on here with the voice, with the the VoIP. But the internet pages load super fast, but the audio is something's... Yeah, even right now, as Travis is talking, I can't hear him because of the um, the technical difficulties. So let's just tell you that you missed um, the Phantom episode that will never be, which was episode 218 of Bad News. And uh, there was some good news and there was some bad news and there'll be more next week. And uh, we're grateful for you. Thanks for listening. Please share this episode with somebody that you think would be interested in hearing more about the blockchain world. We feel like Brock would be a great introduction for uh, for people to listen if they haven't before. And um, hopefully that, like Travis's technology, you'll be able to stay bad. The Bad Crypto Podcast is a production of Bad Crypto, LLC. The content of the show, the videos, and the website is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice of any kind. You shouldn't make any decisions as to finances, investing, trading, or anything else based on this information without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional financial advisor. Please understand that the trading of Bitcoin's and alternative cryptocurrencies have potential risks involved. Anyone wishing to invest in any of the currencies or tokens mentioned on this podcast should first seek their own independent professional financial advisor.